Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you. It's always a pressure. Jack and Karen are away, and you know, if you've been here for a number of years, you may take for granted the fact that you have a pastor who so faithfully teaches the scriptures week after week after week. He's watching us right now. Would you stand and express your thanks back to the camera just to say thank you, pastor, for all that you do for us? Thank you. You may be seated. That's just in case I do a really bad job this morning. We are kicking off a series on discipleship here these few weeks. And we want to talk about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to look at what it means to answer his call to be a disciple. And I want you to know this morning that this week I have used the Scottish Presbyterian method of message preparation, if you're familiar with that. It's the pastor who says, first I reads myself full, then I thinks myself clear, then I praise myself hot, and then I let her fly. <laughs> well, if you know anything about me, for the last 50 years, I have devoted my life to being a disciple of Jesus Christ and to commit that message and invest it in the lives of other people. If you cut me, I bleed this stuff. So this isn't simply academic information. It's not simply personal history. It's deep conviction. And I hope that comes through as we look at the scriptures together. Now, almost 30 years ago, when Joan and I moved to the DC area, I came here to serve a church as a discipleship pastor. And I remember meeting my neighbor in our community and I tried to explain to him that I was a discipleship pastor. And he was profoundly confused and totally unaware. In fact, he even called the church and said, who is this guy? Is he a cult leader? Is he gonna build religious boats in my, his front yard? He had no framework to understand what the term disciple is about. And so over the next few weeks, we are gonna give you some vocabulary, build you some models, paint a picture, try and describe for you what it means to be a disciple and to be engaged in the process of discipleship. So even though like him, you may be confused and slightly unaware, at the end of this series, you're still gonna be confused, but it's gonna be on a much higher and much more significant level. So. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Now, I, I joke with Pastor about this. We ought to be experts on the book of Matthew, right? And I was torn about going back to this passage after just finishing the book of Matthew after two years plus. But this is a profound passage that most of us under, don't really fully comprehend or understand. So when you think of the term disciple, again, context is very important. We need to look at it in a way that gives significant meaning. And when we use the word disciple, we mean a disciplined learner, a devoted follower, a dedicated servant. It's a process of being a learner because it involves our mind. It, it involves our heart being a devoted follower and it involves our hands being a dedicated servant. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, it's important for us to, to understand this because I'm gonna submit most of us misunderstand what Jesus is talking about in this passage in Matthew 11. And it's because of a number of things. 
partly because post-industrial revolution, we and public education, we no longer see the model of parents teaching children. If in those days you learned a trade, you learned it from your father, or you weren't apprenticed to a master. If you received education, it wasn't from a classroom, it was from a tutor. People understood it was a powerful but informal model that enabled them to not simply acquire information and skill, but to understand life. And so one of the favorite terms that Jesus was called was rabbi or teacher, but not in the teaching sense that you and I understand, having spent many years in education at the undergraduate and graduate level. You know, my students, they they were amazing students. They would ask profound questions. Questions like, when is this class over? Is this gonna be on the final? I mean, they had a very different perception of what I was trying to teach. And so it's important for us because a disciple doesn't get a diploma. When you follow Jesus as rabbi, you don't get a a sort of monetary reward. You you get really discipleship. It's not a degree, it's a lifestyle. And so when Jesus says this in Matthew 11, understand he has already reached out. He has pursued the 12, he has reached out to disciples, and now he is offering both an invitation and a command. And he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is because the word is meant to be our foundational understanding of what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. That's why I quote it to you, because it's important. Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, we sang about that this morning, and Tom, thank you for that excellent setup. Let me tell you why I think you don't understand what freedom is about. There's three things that cause us as Americans to misinterpret this verse. Let me suggest the first is our understanding of freedom. Again, that's an American value, right? We highlight independence, we highlight freedom. The problem is biblically defined, freedom doesn't mean what you and I often use in contemporary language. It doesn't mean complete autonomy. It doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want anytime you want. Biblical freedom comes from an understanding that you and I are created to be dependent on God and interdependent on one another. So if we define freedom with the vocabulary of absolute autonomy, I want to suggest that's a recipe for chaos and not a value that the scriptures underscore. Anybody uncomfortable yet? Well, cheer up. It's going to get worse. Secondly, when we talk about American exceptionalism, you've heard this recently in the news, even President Biden has talked about Americans can do anything they want if they set their mind to it. With all due respect, that is not true. We are dependent upon God and his mercy and his grace. Everything we have comes as a gift. Confidence is a good thing. It can become an idol. 
when we trust in ourselves. And so when we hear passages like this, even when we hear the great terms of rest and comfort and peace, remember, most of us are living overextended lives, right? We're, we're mocked to with our hair on fire, no margin. And so the idea of rest and peace sounds really, really good. In fact, that's the American dream, isn't it? that we desire a hassle-free life, life of comfort and peace, personal peace and affluence is what Francis Schaeffer used to call it. If that's your goal, let me guarantee you, following Jesus as a disciple is gonna be very, very uncomfortable. He does not promise that in this passage. Ushers, will you lock the doors, please? <laughs> But we need to see that the call of Jesus here is, is very significant. And first, it starts with simplicity. He says, come to me. Now, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. Okay, maybe a little bit. What part of come to me do you not understand? Is that complicated? Is that hard? Does that require a graduate degree? Jesus says, come to me. He is the object of our faith. So when we affirm even the great solas of the Reformation that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, remember it is always through Christ alone. He is the one who calls us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who defines our direction. And that singular call must compel us as his disciples. Notice he doesn't say come to church. He doesn't say gain a religion. He says, come to me. Now that's exciting, but also challenging when you understand that even those who began to follow him struggled with this understanding that it was God's grace alone, that he had to open their eyes, he had to open their ears. He was the one who extended the invitation. At best, they could respond to what he was offering them. That's why one of the saddest verses in the Bible, in John 6, 66, after Jesus had told them, no one comes to the Father without me revealing it. Unless God draws you, you cannot make your way into this spiritual path. It said, and many of those who were his disciples, who had believed in him, were no longer walking with him because of these words. And then he turns to the 12, and he says, you want to leave too? Notice he didn't say, oh, no, no, is that too hard? I'll make it easier. He turns to the 12 and says, you want to take off? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Have you come to that point in your spiritual journey where you realize the call of Jesus? He says, come to me. Come to me with nothing and I will give you life. And so therefore, when he talks about this rest that he provides, both in the 28th verse and then in the 29th verse, he confirms the fact that he provides rest. He does not promise an easy life. He's talking about rest in the positional sense, as the book of Hebrews talks about it, that we come to this Sabbath rest where we rest from trying to promote ourselves. We rest from religious ritual. We rest from works that somehow makes us feel better about who we are. And we come to him and him alone. 
realizing there is no one else who can save us, no one else who can change us. And so therefore, we rest from all of this religious sense of obligation, of guilt, of pressure, and we come to him not to receive an easy life, but to live a life with him. And at best, we are responding to his call to come, come to me. And I will give you peace and rest defined properly and applied correctly. But he is not giving us a recipe for an easy life. Therefore, we need to stop praying to have an easy life and start praying to be strong people. Some of you don't look like you're sure with me on that, right? To be strong people, what is the process? If that is indeed true, if Jesus is calling me to himself to make me his follower, what is that call going to look like? Because we kind of like the idea of coming to him and receiving some rest. We're all tired. We, we want a hassle-free life. That's my personal goal in life, to live hassle-free. It's not going real well, but it's still a goal. And Jesus says, come to me. And then secondly, notice what he says. Take my yoke upon me, upon yourselves, and learn from me. Take my yoke. Now, I have a, a piece of furniture in our home. It's my favorite piece. It's called a lazy boy. And when that thing, it's the full 360 degree, full tilt, used to have one that had heat and vibration. When that thing was tilted all the way back watching the game, it's what Paul meant when he talked about being in the third heaven. I mean, that is the picture of life, a lazy boy. Unfortunately, that is not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, take up your lazy boy and follow me. He says, take my yoke upon you. And anyone at that time would have known exactly what he meant. It was not a model of freedom. It was not a picture of self-autonomy. You were going to be yoked to follow him, to be put to work, to be engaged with him in his harvest. And so he gives us this understanding to help us realize that this is a picture of the Christian life. And I have never seen anyone wear a piece of jewelry with a yoke on it. Even though we have the symbol of the cross, which we understand as the, the reminder of his death and resurrection, we also have the yoke. And sometimes we have the wrong picture because even when we think of the cross, we forget that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the author of the book, The Cost of Discipleship, which if you haven't read, you don't get into heaven without reading that book, by the way. That's just essential reading. He says the call of Jesus is come and die. Jack, while you're away, I want you to know that's our new motto here at Blue Ridge Bible, the church where people come to die. <laughs> that's gonna take a little marketing work to uh, figure out how to do that. Maybe the youth group can come up with some t-shirts, you know. Kids die at our church, you know. But what he's saying, obviously, is that when you understand the call of Jesus, he is not here to help you discover self-actualization. It is not about you. It is about him. And a devoted follower, the more you grow, the more you begin to understand Jesus from the very beginning called people to this life. 
it was not an easy life. In fact, when you think of the early church, when you think of Jesus' life, you think of anyone in the Bible, did anyone have an easy life? I would suggest to you they did not. And it wasn't a crisis of faith. They simply understood they were being called to a spiritual battle. They were being called to a life, a path of challenge. It was never a walk in the park. It was never called, Jesus didn't say, come and join my picnic. He realized he was calling us to this life that would be full of purpose and meaning and value, but never designed to be easy. So why do we keep praying that way? Why do we keep praying for hassles to go? Now, I, not you, people in other churches pray this way. I've heard this. God, fix it, heal it, solve it, take it away. Anybody identify with that prayer? Now, again, I reserve the right when I'm passing a kidney stone. I pray that. I, I confess I'm weak. But the point is, God takes us through our difficulties. He empowers us to, to, to work through them for his glory, and he uses them to cultivate the purposes of his plan. It's like a soldier who says, I, I, I don't want to go to battle. It's like an athlete says, I, I don't want to get in the game. You'd be like, what? Why are you here? That's your purpose. That's your context. That's where you serve. And so Jesus helps us understand that this life, this like, this yoke of Jesus that he offers to us, it's a compelling call. But it one that gives us also a picture because most of the time in agricultural circles in those days, you notice there are two slips on that yoke. And that they would have understood. Now, it's interesting, commentators go back and forth on whether Jesus is talking about take, taking his yoke because he is the one who is with us in the yoke. And we know at one level that he empowers us. It's all his work in us. But I don't think that's the correct use of the metaphor. Jesus is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He doesn't become a sheep to help us understand what sheep are like. And in the same way, I want to suggest that he models in his life and in the life of the early church that this is a picture of tandem service. You learn from someone else. When Jesus says, learn from me, how do I do that? He's no longer here. He is with us in the person of the work of the Holy Spirit, in the, the scriptures that he's given to us, but he's also given us his church. And we learn best from one another. And we learn best from those who are more mature. We learn best from those who are ahead of us in the game. And that's true whether it's in business or education or sports, whatever it is, we learn best when someone else brings us along with them. Now, I learned this years ago. Uh, one of my uh, schools, uh, I'm educated beyond my intelligence, I, I realize that, but I spent a summer school at the University of Oregon. And if you know Eugene, Oregon, it's called Track Town, USA. And one of the most athletic places in all of, of the country. And so if you go out and any day, there's people jogging and walking and, and running. And I spent a summer at a Christian fraternity house and... Yes, I, that sounds like an oxymoron, but it was really true. Um, and the four guys who lived in my room were all cross-country runners. And so they ran, they just didn't run, they ran twice a day. They ran in the morning and they ran in the afternoon. And 
uh, I was a, a wrestler in high school, and the only time I ran was to lose weight. I, I do not like running. But these guys would both invite me and encourage me and cajole me when, when necessary, and eventually they got me running with them once a day. And by the end of the summer, I was running with these guys twice a day. And I didn't like running, but I liked being with them. And we would end up at the end of our uh, jogs down at uh, Hayward Field, where if you've watched the World Championships last uh, spring, usually the U.S. Olympic trials are held there. This is an incredible spot where the track team trains. And these guys that I ran with were good. And when we got down there, they were nothing. The JV team were running sub four minute miles. I mean, it was incredible to see the level of skill and commitment and ability. And if you were a runner, you said, that's what I want. I wanna be with those guys. I wanna be in tandem with them, learning what it means. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, let's again remember, he is not promising us an easy life, but he is giving us a picture that is good. And if we're honest and we're transparent this morning, some of us would have to wrestle with that. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, said this is one of the key issues of the evangelical church in our generations is if we're really transparent, we're kind of disappointed sometimes. We're like the Quaker who said, God, I'm not surprised you don't have more friends than you do because of the way you treat the few you got. Have you ever felt that? God, what's the deal? You're not coming through for me. It's, my time schedule is important, and you don't seem to be cooperating. And in a sense, we're disappointed because we've wrongly defined what he's called us to. He has not called us to an easy life. He's called us to a life of commitment and faith. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see that, how it's worked itself out. And from a, both a leadership viewpoint as well as few decades in disciple making, one of the things I've discovered in life in the local church is that most people up to at least age 40 need a mentor. You need a teacher. You need a leader, someone who brings you along to the point where then you can reach back and bring the next generation. This is the cultural crisis in the church today. If you're over 40 years old, I want to suggest to you, you need to be a mentor. We need to reach back and bring them with us. If we don't, the church will not survive without that type of leadership and reproduction. If you're over 40 years old, would you stand? And if you're on the borderline, I understand. <laughs> if you're under 40, these are the people you go to. These are the people who can lead you. These are the people who will help you. And it's important for us to own that. The future of our youth depends on us. If we reach back and bring them with us into this journey. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you discovered, though, that as Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? From John 8, 32. You know what it doesn't say? It says, before the truth sets you free, my experience, my commentary, before truth sets you free, it almost always first makes you very uncomfortable. 
And sometimes truth not only needs to be heard, it needs to be seen. In fact, it's most effective of it needs to be felt. So I want to show you this morning a clip from a movie a number of years ago called Facing the Giants. It's a picture of a coach who challenges a young man that there is more than what he is experiencing. And it gives a very, I think, inspirational view of what this life of faith is all about. And, and every metaphor breaks down, and I, I understand, don't, don't lose your sanctification over this. It's just a picture. But it's a, what we're trying to talk about this morning in terms of understanding. You don't get more from God. When you come to faith, you get all of the spirit, you get all of the life, you get all the person of Christ, but the discovery of discipleship means that God gets more of you. And there's more he has placed in you. There's more he doesn't simply want from you, there's more he wants for you. And let's see if you can see this. I don't know if you can picture Jesus with a whistle, but this is a challenge for us to understand possibly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So let's watch this and I'll come up and close this in prayer. Your very best, your very best. Keep moving, Brock. That's it. That's it. 
influential player on this team. If you walk around defeated, so will they. Don't tell me you can't give me more than what I've been seeing. You just carried a 140-pound man across this whole field in your arms. Brock, I need you. God's gifted you with the ability of leadership. Don't waste it. Huh? Can I count on you? Yes. Huh? What is it, Jack? Oh, I want sixty. they call the worship team up. I want to play for a coach like that. I want to be inspired to be what God has called me to be. Here at Blue Ridge, we have pastors, elders, teachers, leaders who will help you. And if you can't find them, you come to me and I will help you. Because that is the life worth living, a life fully devoted to Christ a life of disciplined learning, a life of devoted followership, a life of dedicated service. 
When Jesus offers this to us, we need to understand it's an incredible gift, but it's not easy. Proverbs 13, 1 in the living says, he who wants to learn must be willing to be taught. If you are willing, you can be taught. We can learn, we can grow, and we do it best in tandem together.